This is Jake and Greg here with an episode featuring the artists of the Hyde Park Jazz Festival. First, we'll be hearing from Ade and Iqua Colson, who should, are free to tell us about themselves. Oh, yeah. Well, nice to meet you all. Nice to meet you, nice too. Nice to meet you. Yeah. yeah. So, looking forward to uh, having a hit tomorrow. I guess, what, at 1.30, right? 1.30. Mm -hmm. So, um, I was here previously. We did, I had a concert uh, at the Logan Center, uh, what was that, 21? Yeah, 20. Yeah, Logan Center hasn't been around for that long. Yeah. And um, that was um, that was tied to the AACM having its 55th anniversary, I guess. So we were looking to kind of celebrate, because um, I believe it's the oldest musicians cooperative, um, definitely for, for, you know, improvised music, I think, in the United States, but probably one of the older ones worldwide. So can you explain what the AACM is? Well, it's the Association for Advancement of Creative Musicians. And uh, it was started on the south side of Chicago. Um, in 1965. 1965. And um, basically, we have members that have kind of changed the uh, landscape of music, you know. Um, and I can mention a number of them, but... Uh, Muhar Richard Abrams was one of the founders. Yeah. Steve McCall, the drummer, was another one of the founders. Wow. And uh, then we also had Jody Christian, who was a really wonderful pianist. And Phil Coran. And Phil Coran, who I guess was, we would say, like a mentor of the people that are now known as Earth, Wind, and Fire. Wow. And that was before they got that name. Uh, at the time, they were called the Pharaohs. Speaking of, uh -huh. yesterday was the 21st of September. <laughs> and I didn't forget that. Oh, okay, yeah, right, right. So uh, those were the four founders. And um, we've had uh, members, um, like members of the Art Ensemble of Chicago, um, and different bands, like that's, that's a well-known band, but... Um, Another well-known <laughs> band was Air, and uh, Art Ensemble, I guess, was started by Roscoe Mitchell and Lester Bowie and Malachi Favors, and then later uh, they were joined by uh, Famoudou Damoyer and uh, Joseph Jarman, and then became known as the Art Ensemble of Chicago, because they were playing in Paris at the time, and they mm. just called themselves the Art Ensemble, so it kind of distinguished them from somebody else. They got the full name. Uh, Air was um, a trio with um, Henry Threadgill, um, Steve McCall, and Fred Hopkins. Um, Henry Threadgill, uh, I guess he got the Pulitzer Award like 2016, something like that. Wow. Uh, so Roscoe and uh, Henry have both been named uh, National Endowment for the Arts and Jazz Masters in the last couple of years. And then... Uh, Muhal was named a Jazz Master before he passed away. Uh, yeah, well, Muhal was named one also mm -hmm. earlier. Yeah. But uh, then this year, it's uh, Amina Claudine Myers has been named as a National Endowment's Jazz, Endowment's Jazz Master. So 
you know, the membership is uh, very vibrant, and uh, we've had other members such as uh, Leroy Jenkins, the violinist, uh, Anthony Braxton, um, Pete Cozy, who, if you listen to some Miles Davis records, you hear Pete on, on I think it's the Ag Arthur record, he's on mm-hmm. there. Um, who else could we name? Well, Lester had Lester Bowie had started his own separate band from the art ensemble, which was the uh, Brass Fantasy. Brass Fantasy. <clears throat> but you know the the Chicago that uh, my parents enjoyed with clubs everywhere. My dad's close friend was Joe Williams, who's one of the uh, iconic singers. Uh, they went to high school together. Inglewood High School, which Hyde Park is moving towards and engulfing Inglewood, had a number of uh, incredible people attending that high school. Yeah. But 63rd Street was vibrant with music and clubs and so on. But I think as time progressed, Muhal and some of the other musicians were looking for other outlets. There's a famous... Uh, Charlie Mingus crack on a record yeah, where they're playing and they're doing their thing and Mingus says, could you stop with the bottle clacking and all that, you know, because we're playing music. And so the idea was to be able to create original music, yeah, to move the needle forward and to support each other in that regard. So uh, they started a school to teach youth with no charge to teach music, but also supported each other as they began to develop as composers. And so it was kind of like the shot that was heard around the world because mm-hmm. when they got out there and really started working it, yeah. um, it made a difference. You know, some people, and look, I love Duke Ellington, love, love, but we're going to write something different, something new. I might keep some Ellington in my pocket, but it is, you know, we're in this era. And so creating music in this era was what was important. And finding spaces where it wasn't about the club and so on to produce that music. Um, so. Yeah, so what happened was um, basically uh, one of the ideas of the ACM was original music and at the time like she's saying um, if you wanted to play in a club it was generally expected that you would play something out of the so-called bebop type of yeah. you know music uh, <coughs> repertoire standards you know show tunes uh, was there much improv- improvisation within that um, constraint or well, yeah, there was a lot of improvisation, and guys like uh, Charlie Parker and Thelonious Monk and them—they, you know—they set the standard for that. But if you wanted to play a club in the mid '60s or so, either you were playing that, or you were kind of following like the John Coltrane trend, mm-hmm. right? So you had people like Coltrane, Miles Davis, Cannonball Adderley—you know, great musicians, but. The ASM guys started to kind of disrupt all of that because it primarily was like composition and then using the composition as our springboard. So, Hmm. and the styles were very, very much different than the so-called trends. So, um, 
it kind of put uh, another another kind of approach on the map, and then, but still, uh, Chicago, the guys in Chicago still felt that they needed more representation, so they started to leave to go to New York as more recording opportunities, and um, so people like us, like uh, we stayed, and a few other people like this, Douglas Hewitt, Skyhill Elzabar, a few other people. We had our own bands. Uh, Ed Wilkerson had Eight Bold Souls. Cahill Elzabar had the Ethnic Heritage Ensemble. And we had the uh, Unity Troupe. And um, Douglas Hewitt had the Clarinet Choir and some other things. So we were still in town, and people like Fred Anderson were still in town. He opened up the Velvet Lounge. Um, so we were still very active, and the music was still happening. But um, Gradually, we also started to uh, depart, and so now we've been in Jersey for, I guess, since the end of 81 or mid-81. Yeah. Well, he's from Jersey. Yeah. We met at uh, Northwestern University School of Music, and uh, <clears throat> both of us there, you know, you go to these schools, especially then, it was all about classical studies, and you yes. better be able to, I was a, p a pianist, as he and you know you got to play that to get in. Now everybody's got a jazz department, and I'm not even sure that's a good idea because they're all coming out sounding the same. But that's another <laughs> topic. Um, and so we were. High Park is my home. Yes. So when we left Evanston, we came here. We're here for a number of years, but we're still early AACMers. Um, we're probably called along with the people he named George Lewis as well. Mm -hmm. The second wave, kind of. Second wave. But that was still early 70s. It started in 65. So we got the benefit of being around the original founders, working with, playing with some of them, before we moved to the city and the ASM New York chapter was formed. To join, you have to join in Chicago, and there have been a number of great musicians who have come through, and a number of them are on this festival, actually. Mm -hmm. um, so they're being well represented. But the idea, I think, of coming together and supporting an original composition, those were the founding principles. And of course, I'm here, thank you for putting me on the mic, but I'm really here supporting Ade, who's doing a solo concert here uh, tomorrow. And you know, but you're coming to my home, so I'm going to tag along. <laughs> yeah. And plus, we have we built in another gig in a in a different uh, location after this, so I'm always glad to come. Could you touch on your joint musical process, as inspired by your work with the AACM and other you know musical experiences you've had? Oh yeah. Well, um, I was writing music, um, you know, before I got out of high school. Yeah. But uh, when I got up to um, Northwestern, and I was and I was interested in jazz mainly. I mean, I was practicing the classical pieces and things like that. But you know, I was also listening to the uh, recordings by Coltrane and R. Blakey and Horace Silver and so on and so forth. And Cecil Taylor and Cecil Eric Taylor Dolphy. and Albert Eiler. <laughs> I was listening to all those people before I before I came out here. But um, you know, my my uh, piano teacher, Mr. Henry Smith. Uh, he was actually a rehearsal uh, pianist for the Metropolitan Opera, New York Metropolitan Opera. And uh, so 
I realized that he was working with people like Jan Pierce and Robert Merrill and you know Richard Tucker and those kind of people. So I was very interested in that music as well. And um, so I was kind of listening to both and then also going to church where we'd have our regular, you know, gospel kind of influences. And uh, so I was kind of open to all of that because we were all listening to, you know, the Temptations and Motown and all that kind of thing. Stevie Wonder, you know, the whole, the whole spectrum. So really the... Um, the thing was to try and find, well, like what you were saying, try and find your own voice as opposed to nowadays where you go to like these uh, method books, uh, here's how you improvise, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and this is, here are books uh, with all Coltrane licks and here are the books with all the Cannonball Adderley's licks, you know, but there were no method books when I was listening. I, what I would do is I would buy a record by Horace Silver or R. Blake or whoever uh, and I would play it and then I would try and figure out now how did they do that so there was no you know it wasn't written out no, their solos weren't notated you know um, so the, the idea at the ACM also was to kind of find your own way as to how you wanted to compose music because we weren't doing the standard type thing of okay you got you know an A section, a B section, and you go back to the A section. You know, a 32 bar standard form. Uh, we were looking at, um, you know, so-called modernists. Um, and you had like tone rows and, you know, um, serialism. You had electronic, people doing electronic music. In fact, George Lewis uh, is one of those people that kind of pioneered that, that area of computers interactive with live performance. Uh, so we had all of that going on. And um, the guys were very adventuresome too. I mean like uh, Leroy Jenkins and some of the other guys, Anthony Braxton, all, all of them actually, were very open-minded about uh, how do we, how do we come to a new understanding of what music represents, you know, because at the time, in the in the uh, let's say the first half of the 1960s, yeah, basically everybody had moved into modal music because Miles has put out uh, kind of blue album, which the entire album was based on modal composition or modal performance. So that was really what was in vogue, and uh, we were kind of going against the grain on that one. Um, and then it, it just expanded from there. So listening to um, other types of music, like uh, what they now call world music, right? But actually back in the late 50s and the early 60s, that was really something that, you know, that there wasn't a word for it like that. I think Don Cherry was one of the people who really helped get that off the ground. And I was listening to Arnett Coleman and Don Cherry and those type of people. So. You know, it was really kind of an expansive period of time, and the styles were kind of breaking ground. So we've continued in that vein, but we haven't really turned our back on um, melodic music. Yeah. Which a lot of people have kind of gone full bore into what they call uh, free jazz. And uh, 
which we enjoy that as well. But um, when we collaborate, since she sings, we also are looking at, you know, what is the lyrical content? You know, what what is the verbal part of it? So some of the music is crafted around language or around, uh, you know, an actual message that you can sing. And then some of it is just built about uh, around like what is the texture as opposed to um, some type of uh, modal vamp. You know, so it covers the spectrum. We've, we've done some things and people have said, oh, it sounds like an art song. And I'm like, okay, you know. Yeah, uh, art music has always struck me yeah, as a funny term. Yeah, yeah. Well, terminology can be limiting because none of us who are, well, no one I know anyway, we don't particularly care for the word jazz. And uh, he's can speak on the origins, but it wasn't particularly positive. So um, we've coined a lot of different phrases. And then when we started hanging around some of the great masters, like he spent a lot of time with Max Roach. And Max said, oh, jazz. Yeah, <laughs> you know, not with let's it. <laughs> call it the music of Steve Colson, the music of Max Roach, the same way you do the music of Mozart or whomever. Instead of that, that term, which really came out of uh, the... Well, it came, it's sort of, <laughs> was basically associated with New Orleans and the red light districts in New Orleans. Oh, okay. I didn't ever knew that. Yeah, so the thing was that, um, and there's, you know, there's a running debate about, you know, what is the, um, let's say, where did jazz start? And... Um, I could go into, there's a number of people that will also say that, you know, they, the, um, the easy way out is to say it started in New Orleans. And that's because uh, there are some things that are, you know, tied to New Orleans, like um, Louis Armstrong comes out of New Orleans. And he's probably the most famous jazz artist. And he's the one that uh, basically made solos the thing. Because prior to Louis Armstrong, you had group improvisation. And um, it's mainly built off of the melody. So musicians that didn't know how to read music, they used the melody as a guide. And they would improvise. And so you could follow along because the melody was the uppermost thing in the mind. Um, however, uh, Louis Armstrong didn't get to Chicago till about 1921, 22. Uh, and then he went to New York. And in New York, you had people like James Reese Europe who had been playing what they call hot music as early as 1910. And um, so they didn't use the word jazz to talk about his music, but they did use words like hot uh, which implies that they were doing something to the notes. Hmm. Uh, they weren't just reading the notes like in a straight classical vein and playing yeah. exactly what was there. So they were actually embellishing to some extent, or maybe to a great extent, they were embellishing the notes. And he also had things like, um, he would have like uh, a so-called orchestra 
but yep. with, with 10 pianos and 20 banjos. <laughs> and so, you know, the concept, you, what, do you, what do you mean 20, you know, 20 banjos and 10, 10 pianos or 15 pianos? What would that sound like? So they were doing some very, very uh, creative things in New York. And um, like I say, they were, we, we gathered that they were improvising to some degree. And so the other thing is that when you listen to a um, piano trio or, so, or like a piano solo sometimes, you have people like Scott Joplin who were improvising and then they would write it down. Um, but now what we do is we play the written part. But when they were doing it, they were actually improvising. Yeah, about of course. Stuff. So the idea that j that we can limit jazz to having come from New Orleans, it's a little bit. Uh, there, there's definitely a debate because you know you did have the early drum uh, kit kind of start in New Orleans. People like Baby Dodds uh, did that, but. You don't have to have drums to improvise. So there's, there's, a, there's a line there where we think that jazz may have started in a number of places because the primary, primary characteristic of so-called jazz is that you're improvising. Yes. That's primary character. And there's syncopation. And, um, you know, we think of it as a black art form and, um, we know that there are some characteristics of African music that were brought over from Africa and can still be found in the music that we play currently. And Max Roach being a great, great, great example, example of, of that, uh, right. mastery of a, of a of so-called uh, instrument that is tied to jazz. Because, you know, drums basically were outlawed in the United States in the South. Really? I never knew that. Yeah, because... Um, in various African languages, the uh, words that you use can be, um, they have they have tones that are associated with different syllables. So depending <clears throat> upon how you pronounce it, in a tonal language, you will change the meaning of the word. Sure. Well, they have such a thing as a talking drum, which can imitate the same pitches that are in the voice which means that you can play the drum and you can make sentences that a person who speaks that language will understand. That's fascinating. And so there were Africans that were sending messages to each other in the South and um, slave owners didn't know that. And so they were actually talking through the drum and telling other people that spoke that language as to what they were going to do or how they would do it. And so uh, at a certain point when it was realized, hey, these guys actually are communicating with this drum. They're not just, they're not just playing rhythms, <laughs> they're actually talking. Uh, at that point, they banned drums. So drums were pretty much on the same level as um, you couldn't be caught with a book or with a, because you know, you had different uh, people that were literate and could write the message. Yeah. And so you couldn't be caught with a book or, or with a drum. Yeah, so that's, yeah. you know, you have that deep history. And I think, um, well, back to us. We both ended up at Northwestern. Yes. I was at Kenwood High School. I was supposed to be in the second graduating class. And uh, 
But I auditioned and got into Northwestern School of Music after my junior year. Wow. Um, and, you know, I had been there for a year, so he and I met. He had a band on campus. <clears throat> I think we've left one person out when we talked about the second wave, Chico Freeman. Oh, Chico. Mm -hmm. And his dad is iconic uh, in Chicago and everywhere, but he was happy being in Chicago, Vaughn was. But he taught so many people. But he also was a jazz master, but then deceased. But Chico was there with us. And they had a band on campus called The Life and Death Situation. So that was intriguing to me as a young trying to figure out, you know, I auditioned in on piano, but I knew I wanted to sing. But you yeah. have to meet that criteria, which I was able to do. Um, so that's how I kind of started hanging with them and singing with the band and our relationship developed. I posted once that he was in the dorm my sophomore year. And I said, who is that? at the piano playing My Funny Valentine, and it was him. You know, he's just playing the standards, running through. But Northwestern was an interesting place at that time, and without getting too deep in it, um, in his freshman year, there was so much uh, racism going on that he and eight or nine other upperclassmen, he was the freshie, decided that they were going to do an action, and a lot of action was going on on campuses at that time. They were sitting in the president's office and so on and so forth. And the hundred of them who did this, they still communicate back and forth by email. And I jumped in and said, you know what tickles me is, they said they wanted the best and brightest. They got the best and brightest, so what did they do? They did not take over the president's office, they took over the bank. <laughs> so they took it over, shut it down, and so on. So when I got to campus and I heard this history, and somebody said, you're with Steve Colson, you know, he's, he's, that attracted me because when they killed King, I emptied Kenwood High School of my own activism, you know. Um, so... That was attractive to me. And a lot of our music, our lyrics, talk about uh, the experience, uh, the human experience. You know, there's some love songs there, there's some other things, but we're, you know, speaking on uh, the changes we'd like to see. We just did a big uh, concert at a place called the Armory in New York, which is, and, he wrote something for it, I wrote something, but the piece I wrote was called Atrocities because of what we see going on all around us. And we have other pieces like that after Revelations, Ease and different things where we're talking about the human experience. And our, uh, so our creative process kind of rolls with that kind of thing. Um, when he, but he has expanded as a composer to larger works. And the last piece at the Logan Center was a commission piece in honor of the ASEM's 55th, where they selected from a pool of composers from, and it so happened that he was selected, which was appropriate, he's a member. Um, and it was premiered here, put off for a year because of the pandemic. Um, and now he's getting ready to premiere another piece. So all these guys have kind of gone off into other kinds of uh, expressions of their music, mm -hmm. which is exactly the reason the ASM was 
found it. Well, I'll have to ask my, my mom about um, that event at Northwestern. She was a student at Northwestern. Yes. Just about that time mm. um, mm-hmm. for one year. And then she took some time off of school and worked at a, at a newspaper, I believe, in Evanston. That was, I think, like a, a racially diverse newspaper. I think it was mostly black. Um, mm-hmm. She's not black, but... She was the editor there. She, she met Fred Hampton, I think. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. In fact, I was just reading because I was just uh, one yeah. of our guys that uh, where we set up the uh, takeover, John Bracy, um, he actually brought uh, Fred Hampton to the Northwestern campus. Wow. So I remember we were there and. Um, Guys were talking, but it wasn't long after that till he was, you know till well, he was assassinated. Meanwhile, I'm in high school, and we're you know young, whatever. This is the beginning of a whole movement. I mean, of we course. shook our high school because we started wearing blue jeans to school. You can imagine <laughs> yeah. that was not you know we were at yeah. Kenwood and High Park is progressive and all that, but they were like I don't know that we were like we're wearing jeans when we want to, <laughs> but. Um, I was also going out in the morning for early choir rehearsal, but some days I would go to where the Black Panther Party was doing their Breakfast for Children program, um, which is the precursor, what happened first, what is now going on in most schools, most public schools around the country where they do free breakfast for kids because you find so many inner city kids maybe are coming to school without a proper breakfast. But Fred Hampton and the other members of the party were doing these breakfasts, and I was going out helping, and then they slaughtered him one night. Hey, Fred Hampton. Yes, and my mother stopped me at the front door and said, you will not be hanging around the Black Panthers anymore. And I thought to myself, you knew, because I did not know she even knew, but you know, between me and my father, her and my father, they knew everything I was doing. But they didn't pry, you know, too much. But she said, "That's it." And in 1969, even if you were doing the kind of stuff, you listen to your <laughs> your parents. So I I did not anymore, you know, because she was trying to protect me because obviously it was pretty. Crazy, And even when they took over the bank, they didn't know. Nobody was taking over the bank. It was 68. They had the mainframe computer, all the money, especially for the grad schools, too. You know, the, uh, you know my father's peers who went to grad school there could not live on campus. Yeah. But they could go to grad school there. So they had everything locked down. And this one here had gone underneath and mapped out the tunnels. And were underneath so that when they tried to rush them through the tunnels, they had chained them up. So there's a... Yeah, we chained up there. So, because there were, um, well, they they had the National Guard came in, the state troopers, and then the local police, so... But they couldn't get in. But they couldn't get in that building. So we actually were in there for about three days um, until the negotiations came through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when they hit the 50-year mark, they pulled them all together to honor them. And unfortunately, his parents had passed away. My dad was gone. My mom was still here. And she said, I cannot believe it. She just couldn't believe it. Because of course, at the time, when George Lewis wrote a book on the AACM, and in researching, he sent me an email one day, and I opened the email. He says, you're going to be interested in this article. And I opened the email, and it was an article from the New York Times. Negroes 
And the first thing that shocked me was Negroes. <laughs> but it was 1968. And it was an article all the way in the New York Times about the way they had taken over the Bursar's office. And of course, they got their demands met. 50 years later, it's thank you, you made us better. But we can all see the status of yeah. race relations in this country and the things that are going on. That's another topic. Obviously, there's you know plenty of problems with that, but mm-hmm. you know you'll see progress in some places like this. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, there's um, in the Maroons' office, our school newspaper's office. Um, you have archives of the newspapers from way back when. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The Maroons have been published since the 1890s. I think we have records in there back to the early 40s. And mm-hmm. I mean, you know, if you see the way they were talking about things. Yeah, um, I think and, George. And very different. That same book, he called me up one day and he said, I think your uncle, my dad and his brother both got their MBAs from the U of C, but it was very early. And George said, my research is showing me your uncle might have been the first or second African-American male to obtain that. So it wasn't. And they grew up here, you know, walking across the midway and hanging out in this area was nothing for them. But so, you know, you know, progress happens. Little by little, but it's reflected in our um, music, you know, often. And um, it's an important message, I think, because art, what is art to do? It reflects society, it documents history. And uh, I was supervisor of arts in the school district in the town where he grew up, East Orange, New Jersey. And uh, we had a superintendent who was very progressive, and he said, we should have theme schools, not magnets, because magnets usually are to integrate schools, typically. But the town he grew up in had totally flipped over to all uh, people of color. And so he wanted to do something to attract kids, a science school, an art school. Whitney Houston grew up there. The school that she attended became one of the art schools. Then we had another school of music, and I was minding my business, and then I got drawn into this school. I wasn't looking for it. And then we had a 6 to 12 model, and we went after Cicely Tyson and asked her if we could name the school for her. And after she considered it for a while, she says, yes, only if I can be involved. Well, you know, of course, she's an actress of much stature. And uh, so that was great work. But I used to tell the principals, what you really want is for all your students to think like an artist. Because if you do that, you are assimilating everything around you. And you may come up with, you know, I remember the head of Merck speaking at a conference saying, my artists come in, you know, half the time they're not on time and their hair is whatever, you know, and their artists, their background. But darn, if they didn't create some of the most progressive uh, solutions to ailments, i.e. he used Claritin, and that struck me because I have allergies and I take Claritin. So, you know, it really is the way you think as an artist. And so that was kind of my mantra, think like an artist. You're going to be a scientist, computer guy. You have to pull all kind of things together into whatever is next, and so that kind of thinking, you know. I think Einstein says something like, imagination is better than a bunch of facts. 
to me who is not you know I love music but personally <laughs> I'm maybe not so musically inclined um, in terms of ability the, the idea I mean, just the concept of jazz and the improvisation that mm-hmm. happens live is so far from my realm of ability and so uh, I don't know, crazy to, to think about that the people are so talented as mm-hmm. that and can improvise in a way that's so compelling create something so beautiful yeah so um, my another connection to my family's um did you guys ever interact with dave brubeck in new york oh well i you know that's one of the three the three uh, albums my father got me i was about 10 years old yeah and uh one of them was the dave brubeck you know the famous dave brubeck album um time out and it had blue rondala turk and take five and all those songs on there so yeah, um, Dave Brubeck, he was something else, um, you know, because he was in the military and uh, he saw, you know, he saw like action in, in the war. So, um, but also in terms of composition, uh, hmm. he was another person that was very interesting in terms of composition because um, they kind of expanded it. They weren't just playing the regular blues, you know. They they um, they kind of put that on the map for me as well in terms of thinking in in those in those ways yeah yeah my he, he lived in Wilton Connecticut which mm-hmm. is where my um, mom grew up mm-hmm. and my grandfather was his doctor oh so <laughs> their families were close um, um, I I was too young but a lot of my family including my mom went to um, one of his last concerts in New York when he was in his nineties mm-hmm. and they went backstage talked to him and his family. Um, it's a pretty special memory for them. Yeah, yeah. that's very special. Yeah. <laughs> well, there are, you know, we've had pinch me moments. I mean, I grew up, my parents were playing this music in my house, and his parents were doing the same, but they were also doing other kinds of music. One day my mother says, uh, on such and such a day, you're gonna, we're going to dress up and we're going down to Orchestra Hall. And we went to see Andre Watts early in his career, you know, and mom, she could, she could play. She did not pursue it, but um, she wanted to see him and she thought I should see him, you know. Um, and so I think, and you know, actually she just passed away and I had to recount all the things she had done. She and some of her friends who had some influence and they were able, because the Chicago Symphony just wasn't hiring a diverse pool of people for the orchestra. The Art Institute was not exhibiting a diverse group of artists. And so these women got together and got on these boards and made change, you know, during the 60s and the 70s. And that, that's a lot of what has to go on. When Ade was teaching uh, New Jersey Performing Arts Center in uh, in Newark, um, and they have a jazz program for young people, and they, you know, they found the kids were saying they weren't in the history classes. They weren't quite getting certain things. So I told the head of it. I said, you know, this may sound like whatever, but you really should have him because he's like steeped in all the history. If he'll get up and do it on Saturday morning, because he, or if you can deal with his travel schedule. And so they did. So now you have a kid who, okay, 
you play alto saxophone, so you're going to study Charlie Parker. That's just, you know. But after he introduces them to Charlie Parker, then maybe the next thing they hear is Henry Threadgill, you know. Uh, okay, I'll introduce you to, uh, I'm running out of words. Uh, Eric Dolphy. Well, yeah, or Eric Dolphy. Or I'll introduce you to Duke Ellington's band. But now check out what Charlie Mingus did. Yeah. And you hear, or David Murray, and you hear the influences and the relationships. So I think that's important because when you have young minds that are exploring, that's what we did. I mean, how many times were we sitting up in the dorm listening to all of this? Miles burst into his kind of funk era while we were in college, Jack Johnson and some of those things. Mm -hmm. And so it's a great time for learning I mean that's what you're here for right yeah and it's not just what comes out of the books and the seminars but it's the interaction that is uh, important and you're teaching each other so I think that's uh, a good thing are there any um, younger jazz artists who are making music today who you guys would want to highlight as people you're interested in who are talented you got anybody you want to <laughs> um, well I know, in fact, a gentleman who's playing, uh, Ade is playing in the penthouse, uh, solo piano, and about three hours later, a young man named Luke Stewart has a, a group that's performing. And uh, one of Ade's previous uh, commissions um, was to do a piece that looked at the Harlem School of the Arts, which was a place that... Um, What's her name? She founded it. She founded the Harlem School of Arts because kids in Harlem didn't have the opportunities to study the arts. If their parents weren't able to pay or whatever, she wanted to make Dorothy Maynard, she wanted to make that available to them and she founded it in a church, her husband's church basement. So it's now blown up into a big beautiful building with a lot of support. But coming out of the pandemic, he had, we got a grant he was there helping them redevelop their jazz program, but he also did a commission piece that was performed there. And um, we had Luke on bass, and he's out doing a lot of yeah, stuff all is, over. He's very busy. Yeah. He's very busy. Um, and then we had an opportunity to meet another, well, John Blake played with us, hell of a violinist, extraordinary. And his history is worth looking up and knowing but his son now is out here as a drummer and he's phenomenal yeah, jonathan blake mm -hmm. yeah. jonathan and then we went to hear him and he had uh oh he had several guys um the the vibraphonist i'm trying to i'm bad i'm the one I'm over the one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah but no luke is active and uh jonathan those are two people that are quite busy um but yeah, you know, uh, it's kind of, uh, how would you say, it, it's like a, a recurring cycle because when the uh, internet uh, was was just starting to generate a lot of interest and people were like, oh, now we'll be able to do this and do that because we have this worldwide thing, you know, where we can expose people. But what happens is um, you still have this... Um, how would you call it? Just sort of like a, sort of like a, 
backward looking, like a recalcitrance or something like that, where you still have like peer pressures. And then you still have situations where there's a commercialism that's involved. So like what we've been doing with, uh, and, and we're not the only ones, the ASM is not the only ones, there's been other people who've been active. Like in, um, there was a group called BAG, Black Artist Group, um, like St. Louis guys, like uh, Oliver Lake and uh, mm -hmm. J.D. Perrin and uh, Bobo Shaw and, you know, several people that were coming out of there, Bakita Carroll, really, really great musicians, um, Marty Ehrlich, uh, but they were doing something sort of like what the ASM was doing. And then also in, in Los Angeles, you had um, similar type of situation. Um, and then later, it, it, there was the group in, um, in New York, actually, because Reggie Workman and those guys were trying to do it with Stanley Cow, you know, open up the area so that you could have, you know, wider choices. But what happens is we were thinking, wow, satellite radio, you know, <laughs> they're going to. But, but it, it still comes down to where there's this commercial aspect and that's kind of what gets in the way because the um, the record company is kind of kind of messed up because they they um, sort sort of like the same thing that's going on with the artists now with the writers strike yeah. and the auto workers strike. Um, people recognize that the money doesn't necessarily follow the people that produce the item that you're purchasing. Yeah. And so where the record companies started to charge, or people felt that they were starting to charge a lot more than, than what it cost, and the profits were going to the executives. And you wonder, well, how come the guys that didn't, didn't play anything are walking away with the million dollars, and the musicians are scuffling trying to figure out how to buy lunch, you know? So that's, it's kind of a recurring situation. Um, so that's one reason that we decided we would go independent in terms of it's a harder road because then you have you have problems breaking into that structure. But we started our own record label uh, when a lot of people were not doing it. Um, I guess we actually officially filed for for the company in 1979. Most people were not trying to do their own records, um, and the one, and the people that were famous were under a contract to the large labels. Yeah. And so they had, you know, the management and they had the agents and they had the lawyers mm -hmm. and all that type of thing. But um, you would find out, you, you wouldn't necessarily know it if you were just in the public, you wouldn't know it. But if you heard somebody, well, so-and-so didn't get very much on his contract because, you know. Yeah. And, and then you could really see it happening in the hip-hop world where, um, like for example, there was a group TLC yeah. They were the number one, uh, and females too, number one uh, band. Yeah, but, they were huge. Yeah, they were big, right? But there's all of these legal kind of, you know, trappings or, or uh, places where you can get tripped up because they would give them an advance and they say, okay, wow, we made, you know, we got like a half a million dollars advance, right? But then you come to find out, yeah, out of that advance money, you had to get your own wardrobe, 
You had to get your own cosmetics. You had to get your own hair. You had to provide the money for the videos, which was the big vehicle to, to get the exposure. And so by the time they spent all the money for those different things, basically, and this was with other groups also, you come to find out, well, wait now, now I've done all of these things with my advance, but now the record better sell. Because if the record doesn't sell, then I look at my contract and I realize, mm -hmm. oh, I owe the record company right. now because they did this and they did that. And my record hasn't quite met that. So there are things to the industry where um, you get kind of caught out there. Uh, or they will, they will only print so many records. This is in the past. They would only print enough records so that it, even if they sold just about all of them, you were still just a little bit short in terms of what they expected you to produce. Hmm. And the jazz um, records, so-called jazz records, they would never get the exposure like you would give to the rock stars and the pop artists. Uh, I remember when uh, Dexter Gordon came back from um, overseas, because you had a lot of musicians leave the United States because the music was more appreciated overseas. In fact, the first two uh, books that were written about jazz were by French uh, authors. Really? Yeah, because in the United States you couldn't get you couldn't get the recognition as it being an art form. So I was lucky to work with Amir Baraka for a long, almost 30 years, he and Amina uh, Baraka. And um, Amiri is the first person to write a book. It's called uh, Blues People. It's the first book on black music written by a black person in the United States. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, it came out in 63, and we celebrated the 50 year in, night, in um, 2013. But he died in January 2014. So we uh, so very fortunate to work with him for about 30 years. But just from working with Amiri, you learn the inside because he was a great a person in literature. Because as a poet, I mm -hmm. think he's unmatched. And he's an uh, activist, an activist, and also as a person who wrote that book, which is a historical landmark. And then also, you know, his famous play is uh, the Dutchman. So, um, but you find out a lot of things about how, how business structures are set up and, and, you know, the writer's strike and that type of thing shows you because the writers, um, let's say back where you watch uh, I Love Lucy, well, that goes into syndication and it's still running. But the people now that are doing the writing, they may get eight shows and then that's the end of that series. Mm -hmm. And now they're out looking, well, what do I do now? And they're not getting residuals. And exactly. Yeah, no residuals. Uh, with the yeah. streaming. Yeah. That's, that's, that's exactly what the music and, music and, and yeah, film and, yeah. and TV so, alike. So yeah. you look up and you, you have to sell, like, you know, if you get, like, 10 million hits, you made $30. Well, I think know, Mariah so. Carey said it <laughs> Mariah Carey's doing fine. She said, <laughs> she, somebody said something to her about uh, Spotify, and she said... I'm not making any money with Spotify. I'm making a penny, a penny. Now, her yeah. pennies add up, you know, <laughs> yeah. but it's basically yeah, tells you. December, yeah. And then the other issue, we're close to uh, T.S. Monk, whose father was the great Thelonious Monk, and uh, T.S. is a hell of a music. T.S., his father says, well, you want to learn drums? He says, yeah. 
He says, okay, come on, I'm going to take you over. He takes him over to Max Roach for drum lessons. You know, and then after a while, he says, are you ready? Well, I don't know. He takes him out on the road. So T.S. is a fabulous drummer. And his wife, Gail, is a publicist, did a lot of training at Blue Note, learned the business. But even she, I remember one day I said, hey, girl, I see the New York Times is talking about a new issue set of CDs of monk music. And she said, what? My Times didn't come. Bring me your time. So I brought it over there. And then now she's got to battle with them for the proper respect for the family because they are the owners of the rights of Monk. So we, you know, by starting our own label, it was a good idea. And other people, I mean, Jason Moran is a well-known pianist and he's got all kind of crazy projects going on. Just just work with them to renovate Louis Armstrong House and all of this. But um, he's got his own label. You know, some people think it's better to just put out your own music. Now, it doesn't mean, you know, in our days recorded with others and done with, but it's just nice. And a uh, funny story, our son, the one who I told you went to school in uh, Massachusetts, he was hanging out uh, around uh, where a lot of, well, he got an apartment after graduation where a lot of young people were going to Berkeley School sure. of Music work. And so he was hanging with some guys and, you know, they're musicians. And so he's got parents who are musicians and he is one as well. And he says one day uh, his friend Philip was down in his apartment and he saw this book called Freedom, Rhythm and Sound in Mikkel's collection. He says, oh, wait a minute. I'm familiar with that book. Well, they found out that they're each of their fathers is in the book because Philip was Philip Bailey Jr. Jr. So he's Philip Bailey's son who was going to school in Berkeley. Earth, Wind and Fire is in this book. We're in this book. And the point of the book was artists who stepped out on their own in the 70s and began to independently produce their music, kind of the seeds of what's called the indie movement now. Yes. Now everybody's doing it. But, um, you know, so that was like surprising company and flattering. And a number of the ACM guys are, are in it as well because of the independent thinking. Um, so, you know, art is for everyone. But, you know, artists have to get paid. They have to make yeah. a living, <laughs> you know. So um, it's, it's, it's a journey. And uh, I think it's important to you know, be independent-minded. Another friend of ours, Nat Adderley, his father was cool. the great trumpeter, yeah. Nat Adderley, yeah. and his yeah. uncle was Cannonball Adderley, and they worked together a lot and generated a lot of music. But when that Spotify thing came out, I teased him. I said, what does your Spotify statement look like? Because Cannonball and Nat, they're played a lot on the air. Mm-hmm. And he's like, it's disgusting. You know, you have pages and pages before everything started coming in digitally of a penny, a penny, a penny, a penny. That's that's nuts. You know, so um, they did well for themselves. They didn't do any favors for the musicians um, in terms of being able to receive what they should receive. Um, You put a CD together and before you can get it out or you can drop it on Bandcamp or whatever, somebody else always has it, already has it up there. Um, and so that's the digital world. Yeah, sort of like uh, what they did with some of the movies, how they 
they looked up and the people who already had the bootleg copy of the movie. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. One, two, three movies.com, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah no, the, as the technology changes, the economics of all of this changes with it. Yeah. Mean, on some level, it's suddenly easier to go independent now. Mm-hmm. If you can yeah. just upload your music to Spotify, um, there's no overhead of like, you know, making all these CDs, everything, if, mm-hmm. if you don't want to do it. Um, but on the other hand, I mean, I pay, what is it, $10 a month to use Spotify? Mm-hmm. Um, that ten dollars isn't going to go far enough, considering how much music I listen to. You know, yeah. you know there's, it's just a there's not enough money coming to Spotify right. to pay everyone what you know they should deserve. For well, you try to days. stay up with what's going on. You yeah. know, um, you take the the knuckles along the way with it, whatever it is. So you have to go with the trends, and they're really. I admire them for getting out there because they're trying to write actors. You know, we have friends who are our age who are writers and so on, and yeah, they're resistant. My cousin's a writer on the, on the Daily Show. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But when, I mean, these, these streaming services, they don't publish their numbers. So, so right, people, they don't even, They barely give residuals, really. I, uh, there's a mm-hmm. TV show, Suits, you know, Suits, Greg, mm-hmm. um, that's about like a law firm that mm-hmm. came out in the 2010s and it was added to Netflix and I think it was the most watched show on Netflix in June or something. I think cumulatively all the writers on it got like a thousand bucks for right. billions of hours mm-hmm. of the show in the industry. It's, it's no, nothing at all. Um, and if it was in syndication, it's a, I mean, for whatever reason, when that was negotiated, it was on terms that could support a lot of people. But um, mm-hmm. these days, as one you guys our, were saying, very different world. One of our close friends is a writer. He's been writing for years, worked, did things for the now maligned Bill Cosby, also Sidney Poitier and others. And his nephew is a writer. And I believe he uh, is responsible for the writing about Biggie. Um, and he was showrunner in this show and that show. I can't think of the name of the shows. Sure. I need my son sitting here now to say all that stuff. But, um, and so our friend was saying, Chael's not getting paid the way I'm, my residuals are still rolling in. My yeah. movies are still being shown, you know. And so it's just a different world. Got to adapt. Yeah, I, I do wonder what the, the reckoning will be for these streaming services. Uh, I mean, they're... There's sort of this growth mindset of spending all this money to have all these shows so that people get their service, mm-hmm. um, but they're not making money off of it and they're not paying people. And I mean, who knows yeah. how much longer the strike will yeah, go. Yeah, they got to get a different business model. Yeah. 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 What it is right now is not, not quite sustainable. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Um, do you have any other questions, Kurt? No. Um, all right. This has been a great interview. It's been wonderful to. To get to know you. Cool. Thank you. I wasn't intending to be in the interview. I was just going to be an observer. But anyway, it's a good thing. And it looks like the uh, festival is going to be uh, well-received. I understand it's very popular every year. It's free. That's a great thing. That's a good thing. You know, so people can kind of rove around and see. It's kind of like the big festivals in Europe, North Sea or whatever is huge, and you just (laughs) want it, but it's not free. free. (laughs) Yeah, no, no. We hope our listeners take advantage of the Hyde Park Jazz Festival, and we'll be back soon.